Welcome, listeners, to another edition of Filmed in Canada. We are a podcast about Canadian movies. Our website is filmedincanada.net, where you can find our past episodes, our blog entries, and other content. You can also leave a comment there on what you hear, and email us at filmedincanada at gmail.com. If you found us on iTunes, we welcome your reviews there, as it helps raise the profile of our content. I'm William Lee, and I'm joined today with friends and fellow movie lovers, Chris Savory. Hi, William. Thanks for having me. And Paul Tartaglio. Hey, well done. I'm here. (laughs) All right. Glad to have you guys in. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about My Bloody Valentine. It was remade in 2009, but we're talking about the original from 1981. And if you stick around to the end, uh, we'll also have some thoughts on recent movies we've been seeing, including releases like Brooklyn. And, and maybe Creed. Creed. And Creed. Great. Good Canadian fare. So, My Bloody Valentine, released in 1981, uh, directed by George Mahalka, uh, written by Stephen Miller, John Beard. The cast includes Paul Kelman as TJ, Neil Affleck as Axel, Lori Hallier as Sarah. Cynthia Dale is also in there in a supporting role. You sure it wasn't Jennifer Dale? And you know that she's married to Peter Mansbridge? Cynthia is. Not Jennifer? No, Cynthia. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it comes out in uh, 1981, which is after Halloween in 1978, and Friday the 13th in 1980 have come out. So it's following this pattern of uh, horror movies that take place on a prominent uh, calendar date. Do you want to give us a, a little rundown of, of the plot, Chris? Uh, sure. It is uh, set in the mining town of Valentine Bluffs, and the killer, who's known as the Miner, is a survivor of a negligent mine disaster that occurred on Valentine's Day. So 20 years later, he returns to the town to kill anyone celebrating uh, the holiday as an act of vengeance. And uh, just talking about the holiday theme, I think I saw My Bloody Valentine and April Fool's Day within a year of each other. So those came out, and this was another one of the Canadian horror movies uh, that were part of this tax credit era of Canadian filmmaking. So I guess Black Christmas, April Fool's Day, My Bloody Valentine, Friday the 13th, happy and Halloween. Happy birthday to me. Don't forget happy birthday right. to me. What other occasions are missing from the uh, Hanukkah? Canucksploitation? I think Hanukkah. <laughs> but there's probably a Hanukkah killer movie out there that we don't know I about. hope so. Well, if they made Boxing Day, would it be too obvious who the killer is? Well, Boxing Day would only appeal to... Uh, Retail staff? No, it would only appeal to Canadians and those of the Commonwealth. It would totally go over Americans' heads, so they would never have that. Well, the Boxing Day, I guess I was thinking he's either a boxer or his, or his weapon of choice would be like a box cutter. <laughs> no, no, we got it. <laughs> okay. My first reaction to uh, watching My Bloody Valentine was this reminds me of just any other slasher movie. Um, it, it really knows the formula, and it's not really doing anything new to the formula. I'm not even sure if it is, um, if it is like um, subverting the formula or parodying the formula. It seems to be content doing the formula. So without having any sort of like historical or nostalgic value attached to it, looking at My Bloody Valentine as a typical slasher movie, what makes it worth talking about? 
Well, I mean, for starters, it's it's the kind of movie where you can see the producer pitching it, which I always appreciate. They're like doing exactly what we just did, which is, what's a holiday that hasn't been used? And like, they, you know, the older guy goes, Valentine's Day. Kid, you still got it. That kind of thing. I love being able to see behind the scenes on things like that and then trying to wedge something into it. So Valentine's Day, killer, check. What hasn't been done at this point? We've got a deformed maniac in Crystal Lake. We've got a mental patient, escaped mental patient. We've got is I think a nightmare before or nightmare on Elm Street is after this in '83. I, I believe it's after this. So and we've got rituals and uh, the burning and all those sort of uh, sexy kid uh, murder things going on. So the fact that they had the balls to set this thing in a mine in a end-of-the-road town and then use the people from that town to film it and make it so Nova Scotian that I thought that was just amazing about it. And watching it again for the, you know, umpteenth time, but the first time as an adult, a post-pubescent adult, uh, I really, really appreciated the authenticity of the location, the acting, and the fact they weren't trying to be anything else but... Kids living in a one-horse town that had one thing going on for it, and then um, going from there, I think. That's what really appealed to me, and that's what separates it from the other slasher, generic. You know, Chris and I, uh, years ago, I forget the name of the movie. It was like Just Before Dawn or George it, Kennedy. and Cinemorte? It was Cinemorte, and we saw the director, and he, he was really bitter, by the way. And... Uh, <laughs> We saw him talk about his movie, which was, you know, just the classic kids get lost in the woods and there's a group of, you know, um, deliverance types out there. And then each murder was more grisly than the last, ultimately culminating in a woman ramming her fist down a guy's throat and they show it. And, you know, she's she's on top of him as he's standing up, actually, in this remarkable kill scene. It, It was just so not my bloody Valentine, which really wasn't generic it just there's something about it the way that it just is what it is and i think maybe that's why tarantino liked it it was just so authentically nova scotia yeah i really appreciated that you know part of my beef with a lot of canadian movies is i'm not buying the canadian acting which always seems very wooden and uh, all the lines are delivered in such a deliberate way and i wonder if it's because they're trying to be americans and so this was a movie that takes place in nova scotia and they sound nova scotian the guy wears a blue and black Mac jacket. Couldn't love it more. Moosehead beer is in almost all the shots where the kids are drinking together. And it is, you know, they live in a very small Nova Scotia town. And I really celebrated the fact that that's exactly what it was. And though it follows a formula, you have to remember that in 1981, this formula wasn't very well established. So it certainly didn't feel not fresh. So when we rented, uh, you know, a VHS player that was the size of a smart car and five VHS movies, including My Bloody Valentine, we'd never seen anything like that before. So the kills were fresh. I've still never seen anyone die by hot dog water. So I still think it's pretty (laughs) unique. I feel like we've seen a couple hot dog water deaths since then, probably even before then. But, you know, it's one of those things like um, when you're working in the movies and you're around producers, they want to make it as generalized as possible. That's why when they actually say, okay, we're going to be unabashedly this 
place and unabashedly this experience and we'll leave it up to the audience to go along for the ride. I think that's pretty remarkable and even back in 1981 they were making those decisions. I mean of course as we'll learn it's all about the tax credits and there was really zero risk. It was I'm sure a bunch of sleazy hairy-backed uh, <laughs> guys chewing cigars making these decisions but um, it does have a singular point of view. It has a singular um, uh, perspective, and it just—it's just wonderful that way. I find it, mm-hmm. and the the hot dog water is wonderful. The kill with the axe—I mean, or the pickaxe where it goes up through the guy's chest, through his head, and out through his eyeball—that's pretty remarkable stuff. Someone's thinking this thing through, which it's is great. Some very creative kills. Um, yeah. Did you see the? Did you watch the unrated version on DVD or just the theatrical? Game? We've seen all every single version, virgin version, <laughs> virgin version of this thing uh, yeah. out there. Yeah, because yeah, I read about how the original release was heavily cut from what what the director intended uh, because of gore, and I read about scenes like um, like the guy who gets the the pickaxe uh, through his jaw and out his eye, and that wasn't in the version I saw. I watched the theatrical cut. Um, there's also the couple who are making out in um, in one of the areas of the mine, and the killer comes and puts a drill through the two of them. Uh, so that's done in the first theatrical cut. That happens off screen. You just you someone finds the scene later. But I guess uh, mm-hmm. I mean, they went through the trouble of thinking through these creative kills and and, and creating them. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, you know, I wonder if this Canadian comfort level with gore and 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 making that sort of um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if, I'm, if it's uh, derisive to say it's schlocky entertainment, but a lot of Canadian filmmakers, they go for it. They just say, this is what audiences are here for. You know, Halloween, I think, is a classier version of the slasher movie, and a lot of it being bloodless uh, works in its favor. But something like Friday the 13th, which tries to capitalize on that sort of um, uh, what the audience is after, I think it actually doesn't quite deliver in the same way. Friday the 13th, I mean, it, it's, it feels... Oh, it's terrible. It's trash. There's nothing much going on in that. Well, Halloween's just psycho. That's all it is. It's a retelling of the the Norman Bates uh, uh, story from uh, his victims kind of thing, as opposed to Norman Bates. There's not a lot of blood in that movie. It does set the pace for... I mean, you just hear those two chords and you immediately go, Ooh, God, that's terrifying. So, you know, that was a master stroke of ingenuity, and John Carpenter and Deborah Hill's brilliance for sure. Um, Friday the Thirteenth. I never. I will still, to my dying day, never understand why that movie took off. It's probably the dullest killer or character, probably in movie or villain in movie history. So one-dimensional. So just. Ugh. And the the kills are they're nothing. Like there's just nothing. I think the scariest part of those movies is, and maybe this is because I grew up in rural Vancouver Island, but we all went camping. <laughs> that was the horrible yeah, thing. That goes back to what I was saying about the univer- the universal thing, that the producers are like, we got to get this to appeal to... If a person can't easily put themselves in that situation, they won't get scared. And that's why I appreciate movies like Bloody Valentine, where they say, you know what? You can't easily put yourself in this, but we're going to set a scene that is so authentic, you're going to be in that scene. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Camp Crystal, Crystal Lake, Camp Crystal, or whatever it is, I mean, it's just, it's trash. There's nothing going on. It's just base, watch, titillate, you know, and maybe that's why it's, it's had such staying power. But 
I never, I never once bought into those those things as scary. Or, or is that why you don't like camping, though? Well, I don't like camping because <laughs> camping sucks. I mean, it's just uncomfortable and there's bugs. Someone should make a movie about bugs and camping. <laughs> and even if there was a killer on the campsite, you'd still be bored by it. You mean if I'm in real life and there's a killer on the campsite? No, I, I'd be pretty terrified. <laughs> I think there's a millimeter of nylon between me and it. So The use of, the, of, an, of an actual mine, I think, really is one of the strong features oh. of this movie. Yeah. Uh, we were reading a little bit about uh, the challenges of actually filming in the mine and how they had to use special... Was it halogen? A special type of halogen I don't lamp? think they had halogens back then. It but there was, was concern about... special kind of... Because it would the blow up, right? Yeah. Methane was leaking out of the thing. So, yeah, they used a, a disused mine, which was still a dangerous place to be, to be filming. I grew up in a town called Grand Forks, and uh, just outside of Grand Forks is a place called Rossland, and they were famous for mining uh, mm-hmm. back in the day. And they around them, create, uh, towns like Trail grew up to, to be the cultural hubs that they are today (laughs) but Rossland had that was uh, part of every uh, school year you would do a field trip to this mine this abandoned mine in Rossland and it was it was real it was it was dark and wet and cool yet oddly hot the deeper you got like the deeper you got the hotter it got so it had a lot of stuff and then you know you'd have the I'm sure the tour guide who couldn't have been older than 18 or 19, torturing nine and 10 year olds with, you know, <laughs> above us is 3,000 feet of mountain waiting to come in and crush you like a bug. And they were probably having, you know, good shits and giggles. But the, um, you know, that really left, and maybe that's why I, I associate that with this movie so well, but it really left a lasting impression on me. And it can't not. Like, you just go, you just step into that. And you can put yourself in the position of these poor men that have to go in there and hunched over. Oh, just awful. It's probably the worst job ever. And then the fact that they would say, you know what, we should put a killer in this with a bunch of teens having sex. Man. And the authenticity to me is, it's, it, you might roll your eyes at this, but it's the beginning of The Deer Hunter. Where you're like, man, I don't want to live in a shithole town in whatever, Allentown, Pennsylvania, or wherever the deer hunter takes place. But it has, to me, those opening scenes have that authenticity of this is just a lousy town with one industry, and it's a hard industry that produces hard people. Um, that's a nice. That's a nice uh, analogy. Is that the right word? I mean, the, the or correlation between the two movies for sure. Like. You can picture De Niro, Walken, and George Zunza on the, the Cadillac being drunk, driving down the middle of... I think they filmed it in Sydney. Is that where they filmed yeah. it? Yeah, it's just so real. There's a real verisimilitude there that that draws you in and holds you throughout. Like, they never let up on that. It's a, it's a very cold, dank place above ground and a cold, dank place below ground. And that's what really, really got me. Have you been up to the, the Britannia Mines? Uh, which is um, about an hour north of uh, Vancouver on your way to Whistler. It's, I find it unfortunate that they dressed it up um, prior to uh, the 2010 Olympics. They, I think they wanted to make everything look nice for visitors. Um, and so they made it into, um, um, into like a tourist thing with uh, like activities for kids and stuff. And... The, and the main, um, what do they call it? The building is called 
compressor or compactor. But before the Olympics, do you remember? Do you remember seeing it? It was something like out of Scooby Doo. Oh yeah, it was yeah, like, yeah. It was. It looked ugly and yeah. broken windows. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't know yeah. if it ever lit up. Yeah. <laughs> That was great. I thought I love kids seeing would that. go on yeah. tours of this thing, man. Absolutely. But I, uh, but I went there. Um, I got called out there for an X Files shoot one time, and uh, it was a night shoot. They shot there a lot. Yeah, and I was told to go into the mine and uh, and find something that they left, and I couldn't tell like what we had dressed and what was actually in the mine. But holy smokes, was it scary? Because I I went in there and it was after dark and there's water dripping everywhere. And oh was, man! <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, but it's too bad that, like, that that feeling of that mine I think is lost because now it's it's done it's done up really nice and it's funny that I was reading how um, the um, the town of uh, Valentine Blow yeah Sydney Mines wait Sydney Mines that's the town that's is the called real Sydney location, Mines yeah <laughs> Sydney Mines in Nova Scotia when they found out a film crew was coming they dressed up oh I know <laughs> <laughs> they, had to, they had to find a secondary location yeah that was awesome. <laughs> They cleaned it and whitewashed the walls. Yeah, oh man. (laughs) And you know, the sad thing is that Nova Scotia, or certainly that area of uh, Cape Breton Island, just never bounced back. I mean, I think they've got thirty percent unemployment now, and it's just, it's a grim, grim world. But the people. I mean, we were just there in twenty twelve, I think, and the people are just wonderful. And the again, it just it's an authentic area that um, I think they captured in that movie. Like the bar they go to feels, if you've ever been to a legion anywhere in Canada, the bar that they go to just looks like a legion. I love yeah. how the uh, the bartender uh, is named Happy. Is it Happy? Yeah. <laughs> and clearly that's where SCTV was drawing their uh, inspiration when they made uh, Happy and Sammy the Goose from that, uh, what the hell was that thing that uh, the, the bartender what was his name? Happy Marsden and Sammy the Goose. So you could clearly tell that uh, here was this um, Cassandra character that was just uh, just awful. And he gets he gets the the pick through the the eyeball. Yeah. Do you remember in the movie Fargo when uh, Steve Buscemi's in the wood chipper and there's that perfect bend to the leg as Peter Stormare is pushing the, the, the wood chipper? There's a, a perfect bend to the rib cage as the, the miner is dragging Happy across the parking lot into the mine. The rib cage just sort of going up. As he takes the, the steps, it's very visceral. And the way the, the director captures it with these two light sources and this guy walking from one to the other with this chest sort of going up with every step, awful and awesome <laughs> at the same time. Awesome. And you were saying that the character of Hollis, who's the big guy with glasses, uh, that we see him in Meatballs as well, is that? Yeah, he's Spaz's best friend. I forget what his name is in that in that show. Actually, getting to the big guy, I mean, uh, I read this and it sort of occurred to me while I was watching it, but certainly put into words after reading this. This is the first and probably the last time where you ever see a fat guy not as a joke. Like, he's actually a hero in the movie, right down to the end where he tries to... To save, save the the, the, all the girls and, and his friend. He's big. Uh, he's allowed to be fat, not played off as a joke. And he, he gets to just be a human being. And he gets he has a hot girlfriend. And he, he breaks, a, girlfriend. breaks up the fight between... He's Cynthia Dale's boyfriend. That's right. And he breaks up the fight between TJ and... Uh, the killer guy. Ethel. Oh, shh. 
Are, are we allowed to, not allowed to say that? Okay, sorry. <laughs> so it's nice that Hollis gets to play this uh, just a regular guy who, again, many people that live in Sydney would look like that. Do you think that the movie is upfront about it being in Nova Scotia? You feel that you feel like it was part of the texture of the movie is you feel that it is in um, Eastern Canada, but I thought I thought it was trying to hide that fact that they were in Canada. I thought it was supposed to be like a you know, like any kind of um, like Allentown, Pennsylvania. Town. Yeah, yeah. Um. There's a because there's a shot where um, um, where the the sheriff. Or the cop? Did it, I don't know if they call him a sheriff. If they call him a sheriff, that'd be a giveaway that they meant it to, to be in the states, right? We have uh, they call him Chief, Chief Newbie is his character's name. He's, he's very loosely based on Brody from John. Oh, yeah. So did you get yeah. did you get all the Brody stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Him. Right down to his uh, uh, GMC Jimmy that he drove. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But he's driving along the road, and um, they're um, him and the one of the town councilmen's with the mayor. You can see out the back of the car that there's a Canadian flag. The way that the edit is, falls, it cuts like just when he's like he's had enough time to finish his line, and they cut. But it wasn't fast enough to have uh, to to miss the Canadian flag that's in the background. And it, it just seemed like they were trying, like if they could have had their way, if they if they had done another take, they would have avoided the Canadian flag in the background. Um, sure. Yeah, and they don't because they don't say. Valentine Bluffs, Nova Scotia. It's just is Valentine Bluffs. That's right. Yeah. Worst name for a town ever, by the way. That that to me almost drew, drew me right out of the movie. Yeah. Well, Valentine a, Bluffs. What the hell? Yeah. Well, it's a terrible yeah. name for a town that's not going to have Valentine's Day for. No, I know, yes. right? It's like Footloose. No dancing. Come on, that's stupid. It was terrible. But but you do you do you think that. Um, it's meant to be a generic Midwest town, or is it supposed to be? There's nothing of- Midwest about it. I, I okay. pictured sort of Maine, uh, yeah, northeastern seaboard. It, mm-hmm. it didn't matter if it was. But what I liked was they didn't have the American flag plastered everywhere. They weren't drinking Budweiser. They, and they were drinking Moosehead. Head. So if you're Canadian, you're going to pick up on those. If you're not, you're going to think it's Maine or, or someplace that mm-hmm. that right. is uh, okay. someplace kind of foreign to yeah. you. And Moosehead beer. Um, was uh, was being exported to the U.S. starting from 1978. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so it was exotic when I started drinking beer in like 85, 86, like, ooh, Moosehead. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, it, was, it was almost considered an import because it wasn't Labatt's Blue and uh-huh. Molson Canadian. It's very everyday in this movie because, um, like, the old woman who runs the laundromat, she carries Mabel. her things around in a, a Moosehead box. Yeah, and they've got Mooseheads. The bar is plastered with Moosehead, but the the waitress comes up and says, "Who ordered the Moosehead?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think in '81 that you had to get clearances? For no, I bet they got a sponsorship from yeah. the Moosehead guys. They said, "You know what? We're making a movie, and it was relatively new." And Moosehead probably said, "Sure, use our name, and here's all the beer you can drink," which was probably what they paid the actors with, and. Certainly the extras that I don't imagine they had a lot of money left over. So, Let's talk about Mabel. Poor Mabel. No one deserves to get uh, killed and then put in the dryer. And Mabel was so sweet. Didn't you find her sickly sweet? Yeah. Who did she have a crush on? Was it the chief? Yes. Yeah. You think that she was pining for the chief? You know, working at a library, I almost pictured if the town had a library, Mabel would have been the librarian. But sadly, they only had a laundromat, so she had to be the <laughs> laundromatarian. 
Yeah. Oh, well. Poor me. Now, I don't know if she worked at the laundromat. I think she might have been just No, she cleaning. worked at it because she oh, came out of the back room. Okay. Like, I thought she was cleaning linens for the Valentine's Day dance, and that's why she was in the laundromat. I wasn't sure she owned it. I don't know who in the movie really deserved to be killed. What did, what did Axel have against any of his victims? Because they were celebrating Valentine's Day. They knew better. Maybe no one would have died if they hadn't started, if they hadn't said they were going to have a Valentine's but Day. But he also killed Happy, who was telling the kids the same thing that he was, Happy was warning them not to have the Valentine's Day dance. Yeah, but Cap, I mean, killing Happy was probably, he had to kill Happy. Happy was off. Happy wasn't happy. Happy was awful. Happy reminded me of a character out of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Like, he was so... Arch? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. You go down there. <laughs> like Large Marge or something. So they, he killed everybody because of Valentine's Day. Because they were planning a dance, right? In a town called Valentine's Bluff on Valentine's Day. And nobody missed... Uh, the, the initial kill was uh, the girl who goes down into the mine. With That's kind of a strange scene, isn't it? Like you, you called I, her a prostitute when we were talking. I thought about she was a prostitute, and, I don't know and why also you think that. there was well, she had a tattoo, uh, but also um, <laughs> prostitutes have tattoos. But um, there was a, a feeling like it was out of time and place. It certainly didn't. There was no ever any payback on. Or payoff on it, like it's not. No like one found the body. Chief Brody and found the body, yeah. or it was yeah. used in any way. Well, I think that's where the the first heart like ends up in a, in in a the candy box. box. Oh, that in the candy box. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay. So, but that, that was a lot of effort to to send a candy box with a heart. I think. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he didn't have to take her to the mine. She didn't have to stroke his trunk. <laughs> and um, she seems to be okay with the. The I whole being yes. downstairs, yeah, and and him not taking off his mask and stuff. That was, that was strange. That was one of the stranger. Probably, um, it would have been much better to start off with Mabel's death or something like that instead of this scene that really didn't have any purpose other than to get the the kids into the back seat at the drive-in or something like that. You know what I thought was pretty scary is when he's got the pickaxe and he is smashing the lights as he goes down while he's chasing them. Because you can't help but feel vulnerable in a place that is a thousand feet underground. Once you've lost your light source, mm, yeah. you can't see your hand in front of your face. And then when they're fighting on the uh, carts, little cars that go back up to the surface, I thought that was, uh, I mean, it wasn't Indiana Jones action, but I, I loved Yeah, the, what they did with, the one, with the one camera yeah. in that one stretch was pretty yeah. awesome. Mind you, it ended up being the world's deepest mine by the time that the, the chase was over. But. but I like how they use the technology that they probably just found in the mine That's and, right. and made it and yeah. used it into a, an action scene. And I thought I like I like the clunkiness and the it looked like something you would find. It's not dressed up to be any fancier than it has to be. Yeah, it's not right. a golf cart with uh, any of that stuff going on. And that shower sequence where she gets put on the hook in the shower. Oh, Nuts. Yeah. Or not the hook, the shower Through, head itself. Oh, yeah. Head and those suits so. dropping down was Terrifying. just like, clearly the director was in, hey, can we do something with this? And the, the artistic or the art director was like, yeah, hell yeah, let's do it. That's good. That was terrifying. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, the thing that about it was it was such a uh, awful environment that only a teenager would be horny, horny down there. So I did, <laughs> or a young person would yeah. sort of move beyond the the gruesomeness of where they're at and actually just em- embrace it. Um, you guys have had some time behind the scenes on movies, and uh, you've done some research about um, the whole Canadian tax credit stuff, uh, the tax credit situation the environment where this movie and, and a lot of movies like it came out of. Um, do you want to just give us a little background on, on what that was about? So growing up in the in the uh, 70s and 80s, you became vividly aware that there was a Hollywood and the Steven Spielberg-esque type pictures, and then there wasn't a Hollywood. Like there was a bunch of other movies being made. You could tell the actors their cadence wasn't Hollywood. They they didn't sound American. The the film was flat. Lots of two dimensional uh, stuff going on. It sort of corresponded like you had VHS or VCRs coming out. Super Channel and First Choice. These are probably before you, right? You remember those? Oh, I do. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. I, I petitioned my parents' heart to get those. Okay, so and these are things that were demanding CanCon, and they were able to grab this CanCon through this uh, this never-ending, seemingly never-ending stream of schlock that was out there. And so you got to see a lot of really uh, genuinely wonderful movies like My Bloody Valentine out of it, or my favorite was Death Wish, this Bob Clark thing from 73 that I've never been... 73? It was Death Dream. Death Dream, and uh, just a mind-blowing anti-war movie that I saw maybe half a dozen times on First Choice. Whenever it was on, I watched it. And just just an amazing uh, picture. And then later on in life, you learn that the reason all these movies were being made is because the Canadian government was saying to the filmmakers, we'll give you 100% of your investment back in tax credits. So it literally cost them nothing to make movies. And it set up film industries in places like Nova Scotia, Montreal, uh, Toronto. Toronto. It didn't really feed so much out on the West Coast. That came much later with uh, the advent of um, cheap transportation from Hollywood up to, to Vancouver and such. But back east, the, they were churning out these movies like it was nobody's business from about 73 until I think 85? Is that when they killed it? Uh, in 82, they reduced it from 100% um, tax shelter to 50%. So I think there was some residual stuff, but you got movies like Meatballs, The Picks, My Bloody Valentine, um, Death Dream. Cannibal Girls. Cannibal Girls, Black Christmas, Prom Night. All these movies that filled the, I didn't have a drive-in where I grew up, but the crappy little cinema that that I used to go to in, in Grand Forks where... Or the Gem Theater. It's not crappy. Sorry, Gem Theater. <laughs> Where you get to see double features like Prom Night and My Bloody Valentine on the big screen. And it was, you know, pay three bucks and you get to go get the, the pants scared off you. And yeah, there was just a, a... And, of course, all those Cronenberg films, too, that came mm-hmm. out of that. It really did sort of set the table for what came after with this Hollywood North. So now you have the... You have the infrastructure that can support actual homegrown or, you know, uh, imported uh, talent. So Montreal went its own way and became a very sort of francophone uh, industry based on what was being done uh, around these tax credits. And then Toronto became a hub of of, uh, filmmaking. 
and then eventually Vancouver. So we've got to really, we've really got to thank the Canadian government for their 100% uh, tax credits for Smallville and uh, <laughs> Flash <laughs> and any other <laughs> Canadian shot stuff. Wow. I mean, am I missing something there? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these movies that were, uh, tr I mean, there were over 350 movies in a decade, which is a lot from such a small country. Uh, but many of them never even were cut to be viewed. So not even just not on the big screen or on VHS. Some of them just didn't even, they weren't even completed. They were just started because you had nothing to lose by trying to get something in the can, but you may not have even completed the project. What's hard to believe is that someone like Cronenberg making movies, I mean, it's Shivers came out in 76, Rabbit in 77, and uh, The Brood in 79. And so he benefited from that, but it spooked the Canadian government because they're like, we don't actually want to feel like we're endorsing this kind of mm. product because it was so sexually graphic mm -hmm. and very gruesome. I think a lot of people probably watched those early movies through through their fingers in the movie theater. Well, or, yeah, with a, a firm grasp on things, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> casting Marilyn Chambers as your, uh, your heroine in a movie is pretty ballsy, especially when she was at the peak of her triple X prowess, for sure. So I could see why they would, the Canadian government might sour on that. Were they getting with the hundred percent um, credit? Was that up front, or was it upon completion of their movie? Uh, let's see. It was investors take tax deductions for their investment in Canadian-produced movies. Okay, so if, so if if an investor or a company wanted to back a movie, what they were putting into the movie was completely written off, and so they didn't even have to have a movie at the end of it. Yeah, that's remarkable. Uh, did you guys see the? Uh, have you seen this the the remake? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We saw it in three D on in, the big screen. Yeah, oh, okay. totally loved it. It <laughs> yeah. was amazing. Yeah, okay. the killer is different in in two in two versions. Gosh, I don't remember who the killer was in the remake. The killer in the remake was the kid from Supernatural, so he's very handsome. The connection to the the mine was much more specious in the seek in the remake, if I'm not mistaken. In the 1981 version, TJ is the son of the mine owner. Yeah. That's he's, right. He's gone away to, to make a name for himself, but he fails, so he has to come back and work in the mine. Oh. Right. And yeah. his, his ex-girlfriend, Sarah, is, has taken up with Axel. Yeah. Right. Um, and then through the course of the whole thing, the return of, uh, of the killer miner um, ruining Valentine's Day, um, they find out... say Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> um, they find out that it's uh, that it's Axel who's the killer, right? In the original. No, Axel's not the killer. Axel is the killer. He's armless, and he walks uh, off camera. Oh, TJ's right. Okay, TJ's but they the set up TJ to be the killer. Yeah, it, and yeah. it's Axel. He's angry right. and resentful, yeah. and and so in the remake, they actually go that way, and they say it was it was TJ who um, who was who was present in the attacks by the miner by the original attacks by the miner. He's traumatized from that, and that's why he becomes the killer in the remake. Was isn't that what happens? I can't remember. I can't honestly, remember. William. I just remember it being in three D, uh, being like it had that really lurid cinematography in it that I just love, where the the yellows and the oranges make you feel like 
you're having a fever while you're watching it. And so <laughs> it was really fun. It was a fun rock and roll movie versus the original, which is a, a dank sort of depressing um, experience for sure. So, so TJ is not the killer in the original. Axel is. Mm-hmm. And Axel is the killer because he killed the original his killer is, killed his father yeah, that's right. while he was under the bed, right? Right. Yeah. Which, by the way, no one's talked about, but that opening sequence, grisly, unbelievably grisly. That guy is chewing on a man's arm to survive as he's been in there for, what, weeks? The way they left that, it was like, no wonder that the guy went off and. Uh, Actually, there's something I did want to mention, that there's this real undercurrent of anti-unionism in the uh, in the original movie. I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but I think, did we discuss it while we were watching it? We didn't, but I, I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, like there's this real undercurrent that it was the two sort of lazy supervisor uh, union guys that weren't paying attention when the <laughs> mine blew up. The the um, the people that uh, uh, go to the the party go to the union office that's being shut down because they're up to no good in the in the union thing, and there may even be like a couple other derogatory things that the mayor or Chief Brody uh, throw out there against unions uh, throughout. Um, not necessarily the mine owner or TJ, but. Uh, I felt like there was this real anti-union sentiment going on underneath the entire movie, especially in a depressed old town like that. And when you think about it in terms of what was happening in the world, you got the birth of Reagan, uh, Thatcher was in full swing, you know, everybody was turning conservative at that that particular juncture in life. It it just seemed like it was really on the nose, uh, anti-union bashing uh, throughout that picture. And I don't think they had that going on in the second one. I'm just surprised with the way we leave Axel. Uh, so there is, a, you don't call it an avalanche. What do you call it? A cave in. A cave in. And Axel loses his arm. And then we see him walking away. I can't believe they didn't want to do a sequel to this movie. Mm. Well, they set it up, but the tax credits dried up, so... And, you know, did, did anyone do the research and find out if it did okay in the box office or at a... I'm not sure. So many of these fall, these movies, and again, it goes back to Friday the 13th. I think they were hoping for that, but you can only have one Friday the 13th, I suppose. I guess it wasn't a monster hit like a Friday the 13th, so it wasn't... Um, whoever the backers were, weren't inspired to put more money into it tax credits drying up maybe not the best uh, thing let's go make meatballs mm. yeah there's a future in that how many meatballs movies did they make three jeez it was really three i thought there was sure two. you were looking up george uh, mahalka uh, who seems to have like a prominent tv filmmaker. yeah yeah for sure um anything did he do anything else prominent uh, after this well he shot a little movie called et and then uh, <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> Not the same George Mahalka. Uh, I honestly don't know. Let uh, Chris talk while I'm looking this Well, uh, a, f- a few interesting things about a few members of the cast. Uh, TJ, who's played by Paul Kelman, was on an episode of The Littlest Hobo called The Inside Job. So I'm not sure if Paul could get more Canadian than being on The Littlest Hobo and being in My Bloody Valentine. Yes. And when is somebody going to make a, a big screen adaptation of The Littlest Hobo? Well, they're training the dogs right now. That's what I heard. 
They can't get the CGI right. Howard, who was the clown, the goofy guy, was in the movie First Blood. Mm. So he continued to work in Canadian movies. And uh, this is the craziest thing. Don Franks, who plays Chief Newbie, is uh, a well-known jazz musician who goes by the, uh, his stage name is the Iron Buffalo. He's like a, an activist, a, uh, a musician. He's married to a First Nations woman from the Cree Nation. They have a daughter named Cree Summer who was in the television show A Different World. She's also a voice actor uh, who's done a lot of things, including uh, being Penny on Inspector Gadget. No way! Well, that's his daughter. Hmm. And I think in the credits they say, and guest starring... Um, Don Franks. So it was like Don Franks was essentially the sure. uh, Donald Pleasance of this movie, sure as Donald Pleasance was in, in Halloween. Well, he was Chief Brody. Um, <laughs> so it looks like George Mahalka did a bunch of things that you would recognize if you went into a video store in 1988 to 92. In the horror genre or yeah, lots of just, different things? Just mostly horror. But then his big break, I think, was La Florida. You remember that movie? Yeah, I do remember that movie. About a hotel. Montreal people moved down to, to Florida. You'd and recognize the video box for sure. You'd see the, the box for sure. You've seen all this stuff. And then it was just television. I mean, this man is prolific. He's worked since, um, since then. He hasn't stopped working. Mm. In 2015, he did a video short called Black Christmas Legacy. It's an examination of the effects and lasting impact of the cult classic horror film Black Christmas, featuring interviews with cast, crew, and industry experts. 2015, he shot it this year. Okay, so I usually uh, conclude with a segment we call What Makes It Canadian, where we just try to identify the tropes or um, characteristics, uh, little behaviors that we find in Canadian movies, whether it's things that the filmmakers fall back on, or if it reveals something about the Canadian personality. So like beer, the gore, the weather, that kind of thing. Uh, just... The moose head, the mac jackets, the uh, accents, the way they talk to each other, the way the cars they drove, the weather, the... If we had seen a Canadian dollar bill, I wouldn't have been surprised. It was very Canadian through and through. Um, I can't think of anything else that... All right. On this podcast, we have a made-up and completely unnecessary and arbitrary rating system. So how many leaves would you give this movie? I say we base it on 14 because uh, Valentine's Day falls on the 14th. So out of 14, how many leaves would you award this movie? I'd say 12 out of 14 leaves. 12? Yeah. It's a solid movie. I've probably seen it eight times. I mean, it's really woven into, you know, coming of age and the new technology of VCRs, but it was definitely a sleepover girl, you know, squealing in the corner kind of movie. We watched it a lot. Hmm. I second that. So I, too, was squealing in the corner with the girls. We really do uh, have pillow fights, by the way, in our pajamas. Sure you did. (laughs) Um, Or do. (laughs) Uh, out of 14 Maple Leafs, I, I would give it definitely a solid 12 as well. Yeah, and again, uh, big fan of the genre, but this was, I think, set apart for its authenticity. I just loved the feeling of it. Sort of like Rosemary's Baby or um, Psycho. I don't love it as much as you guys, but uh, certainly I've uh, got Well, you're wrong, William. <laughs> well, I've gained a better appreciation for it, but I'd, uh, you know, I'd, I'd award it, uh, let's say, 10 leaves. So I, I do recommend people check it out. So what, is, what does that work out to, like 70%? Uh, 
I didn't bring a calculator. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, so what have you guys been watching lately? <laughs> Creed. <laughs> Creed, yeah. And uh, I've seen Brooklyn twice. Wow, okay. I did see Brooklyn on the weekend, uh, and enjoy- I enjoyed it very much. Um, you Obviously, you loved it if you saw it twice. Uh, saw it once, absolutely loved it, and thought that my mother-in-law would really enjoy it because we had just traveled to Ireland together. So uh, two days after we saw it, we went to see it a second time. It's actually because I needed to see it twice. I was crying so hard the first time <laughs> that uh, I didn't catch any of the dialogue. So we went and saw it and under the auspices of bringing my mom. It's true. <laughs> it's a wonderful movie. With a big, strong Canadian connection as well. Cause I yes, think indeed. The Brooklyn scenes were actually filmed in Quebec City. So, or Montreal, Montreal, pardon me. Montreal. Yes, yeah. There's one shot with Brooklyn Bridge in the background. That might have been the... the it's a painting of a Brooklyn Bridge in yeah. a Montreal restaurant, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, um, yeah, I caught it on the weekend. I, I thought it was a really charming movie. I'm going, to, I'm going to offer something, and you can tell me that I'm totally wrong. But You're totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a woman's movie? Is it a movie that is geared toward a female audience? Now, I offer this because I used to think, no, there's no such thing as men's movies and women's movies. But I think I was only speaking from the perspective of like uh, a young male in my 20s who, who believed I knew exactly what a good movie was. And I thought all good movies are good movies. But um, as I've grown older, I do realize there's movies that appeal to sort of my primitive sensibilities. And I think there's movies um, that have appeal for a different audience and a different sort of temperament, which does not to say that I, I, I like them or dislike them, but I, I do feel like there are movies that are tailored towards certain audiences now. Am I wrong to say that Brooklyn is a movie that's designed for women? Uh, I feel pretty strongly about this, so do you want to go first and then I'll wait? Yeah, I think, honestly, William, it's, you know, reading the criticisms of it or the, what passes for criticism this day and in, in, in age in film, it's that it's it covers a lot of universal themes. It just happens to be touched or told from the point of view of a woman. Um, there's something... I mean, it's the first movie since, oof, I can't remember when, maybe Casino Royale, where I actually wanted to go back and see it for the second time within the weekend because of the universality of it. I thought it was just masterful storytelling, simple, universal person, you know, moving into a place where they're very uncomfortable, falls in love, falls in love again. I mean, I don't want to give too much away of the story, but... It was a wonderfully universal, simple story told wonderfully well. And, you know, I backed it up with uh, Avengers Age of Ultron on the weekend. <laughs> and that's pretty much the exact opposite. So, Is that a men's movie? No, it, it was... I don't know who that movie was made for, but it was just a mess of stuff and uh, trying to appeal to people. And Brooklyn, on the other hand, was just... It was classic. It was a classic movie. When I say, I, I wonder if it is a, uh, a movie for women, um, I think of how like the, um, the protagonist encounters a lot of people who help her along the way, who are friendly and supportive of her cause. There's not a clear villain who, or, an, or an antagonist who is, in, who is trying to block what she wants to achieve. And I wonder if that is something I see more 
in movies that tend to appeal to men is clear cut lines about like who's trying to achieve what and who's against them, who has to be defeated to, to achieve that. Do you mean like a Billy Zane character in Titanic where well, it's Jack and Rose? It's and- too arch. I'm thinking of other immigrant stories. So you look at uh, Ilya Kazan's maybe, and I can't remember the name of it, but where the person comes to America for the first time, or uh, Godfather Two, classic immigrant story, where there isn't, I mean, there's the arch... Uh, the bad guy that he kills in the hallway, I forget his dom somebody, but his friends, it was like people were willing to help him as well, even though this was a very closed off man, Don Corleone, of course, and uh, or Robert De Niro. And it, it felt to me very similar in that. It was, it was more about, again, the universality of it all. It just happened to be told through a woman's uh, point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I feel so strongly about is that it was to me, an immigrant story. Mm-hmm. And when I came back to work on the Tuesday that I came back and <laughs> told Tina that I'd seen it twice, I realized that every single person in our office has that story where none of us are Indigenous Canadians. So every one of us has a family member that took that brave step and had the courage to leave everything they knew, mm-hmm. their home country, most of their relatives. Uh, whether they struck out alone like she did or whether they came as a family, every one of us is from that immigrant story. And that's what I found so moving is that boat, you know, pulls away and all the families are saying goodbye. It could be forever. And every one of us comes from that story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, though we, it's a coming-of-age story of this young woman, I feel it's very much as an immigrant story that every one of us can appreciate. I love the way this up that scene up where um, when she's leaving on the boat and you get the crowd shot nobody is happy in that in that shot everyone no, is sad. And, and many of them are old yeah. because that's what you know the youth yeah. have to leave in order to make a life for themselves so yeah. that when they pan through um, i would say like 60 or 70 percent of the crowd are older people saying goodbye to the young people who mm-hmm. have to leave in order to make a life for themselves you're very impressed by oh boy i didn't i didn't look up her name sersha 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 ronan uh the the scene where she, where she talks to um to the boyfriend um where she she tries to have a second chance to uh, to express how she feels about him and she she comes about it in in, in this very uh, roundabout way she's She's very timidly getting to the fact that she can she can say what she wants to say to him. Oh boy, I wanted and the the camera is so tight on her face. I just wanted to hug her so much in that moment. So vulnerable yeah. and just trying to get it out there. Yeah. And I thought she just again so much of it was in her eyes when she looks around the dance hall when she's with her best friend Nancy at the beginning of the movie and you know that she's looking around knowing this is the last time I'll see this crappy church hall and these people and all the boys and their rugby but it, blazers. But it wasn't, it wasn't uh, derision. It was, it, it no, was, it was more just, melancholy it was a, it and was a thoughtful sadness. Look, last and, look at this place. And almost like a resignation, like, uh, here we go. It was wonderful. Like, she conveyed so much with so, like, uh, yeah, it's been a long time where since I've seen a movie where they allow actors to speak with their face instead of Boring you know, exposition boring, or eye rolling exposition. exposition yeah. you know. mm-hmm. I haven't seen Creed yet. I think I, I'm, I'm kind of mildly interested in it, but um, what, what was your experience of Creed? Creed. Okay, so Sylvester Stallone is, is masterful. It's a, it's a case in, again, understated acting. He gets to do what I assume a seven. 
he gets to be that he's so comfortable in that character now that when you see it you actually believe he's a legit real life ex heavyweight champion of the world and they sprinkle within that real life boxers and and uh, boxing people but you know mostly it's this kid Michael B Jordan and the director and i guess they work together on Fruitvale station and it was so exciting to see people of color I don't know, it's just a world that you just don't see anymore, especially in like, uh, it was like a real throwback to the original Rocky movie where you're looking at... at uh, sort of a working class Philly Yeah, Yeah, family. something you wouldn't ordinarily get a chance to see. And this was a real sort of turn back to that. Even though the I thought maybe his backstory was a little, a little wild, but uh, and you have to see it, I'm not going to give anything away. But, uh, but his... You know, Michael B. Jordan's, again, acting with so much not being said and all the performers around him being allowed to just be on screen and convey things, wonderful. Whether, whether it be, and by the way, the, uh, the, certainly the first uh, bout is as masterful as Scorsese ever did in Raging Bull. It I've is, heard a lot of comments about the cinematography of the... It fantasy. is unbelievable, that first uh, boxing match. It's one single cut, It and the way they use audio, just like Scorsese did in Raging Bull, the way they... Um, the way that camera flows around the ring, you really feel like you're this kid in the ring who maybe is in over his head, but thanks to Rocky, is mm. not in over his head, so... Mm. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It's too long, too long by half, but uh, or by 30 minutes, I'd say. There's a secondary storyline involving Rocky that I thought they could have done without. But I think they're already working on a Creed two, and I love the idea of this young director and young man taking over a franchise and really running with it. And I get the feeling like uh, Stallone kind of felt like this was the end of maybe Rocky, and uh-huh. he too will end up underground for the next one. Do you remember in the 80s we saw comedies like um, like the airplane movies and Naked Gun and a visual gag in the background was they would have a Rocky poster but it was, it was like Rocky 21 or something. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, well yeah actually now that you mention that. <laughs> Sounds yeah, like I a do. Yeah, it does. That does ring a bell because I think they'd already screamed up to five by 1990 and then they sort of lost steam. Was this eight or seven? Well, Rocky Rocky Five is where he was like on he was his, street fighting. His son's manager or something, right? His son wasn't. Uh, well, yeah. Well, not. It wasn't. He was. He had a. He had like a boxing gym, and like the young kid wasn't respecting him. So then, oh, fight the that's street. right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And then that then Rocky Balboa would have been six. Right? Okay, so this is seven then. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's a franchise. Yeah. You saw Rocky Balboa? No. No, oh. no. I lost the thread after uh, I must break you. Uh, after that, was that four? I think that was four. Yeah. yeah so after that, um, and he sort of looked like a roided up, greased up sort of goomba. So I, I lost interest in it. It just okay. didn't do anything for me. So interesting that people have commented about the cinematography. Because um, in the one thing I didn't like about Rocky Balboa, which I thought was actually pretty decent, when they got to the to the big fight. They lock off the camera in one position, like you're watching it on ESPN. Mm. And that's how you watch the whole fight. That's an interesting choice. I don't think it sounds to me like it wasn't successful for you. I wanted, I, you know, I wanted 
some camera tricks and I wanted interesting angles. I wanted to see Raging Bull. I wanted to see Rocky Two. Mm-hmm. I wanted to I wanted to be in the ring with them, but it was I was watching on a TV suddenly. So. Not a good choice. Yeah. This one, this the this first fight sequence in particular, because it actually. It's it's a three minute because I think a boxing round is three minutes if I'm not mistaken. It's a continuous cut, three minutes long, and uh, the way they play with the audio, where you hear as it's moving around, you know the voices. It was fantastic, and then the punches were just unbelievable. So, mm-hmm. the choreography. I mean, you could really. It was by far the best fighting sequence of the movie. So the climax of the movie, the fighting sequence, wasn't nearly as well done it was more classic rocky style Mm -hmm. but it certainly wasn't locked off and i I will say this one complaint and i I hope the young man doesn't hear this but the uh the champion the challenger who was a real bad boy from liverpool he was kind of doughy he didn't have the he wasn't ripped he wasn't ripped he kind of i don't want to say he had boobs but he didn't uh did he have like love handles yeah he was kind of tubby and and not really sort of Compared to all the other guys, the kid had to fight to get there. He just wasn't wasn't there. Great face, good actor, but just not necessarily ripped. And I almost feel like maybe they had to get him at the last minute and didn't give him a chance to get to pumped. spend four yeah. six, four to six months. Yeah. Or maybe that's what happens when you're a champion. I don't know. It's weird how the mythology sort of taken over for the actualness of it. So you actually believe Rocky Balboa was a real fighter in this 80s and or 70s and 80s and uh, he's a real guy. And when these real guys say, you know, call him champ, you actually believe it. Because they probably call him champ in real life, which is really weird because of all he did for boxing. All right. Well, Paul and Chris, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah, let's do this again sometime. I really appreciate your uh, What's next? your insider knowledge on on uh, what happens in Canadian movie making. Sorry, I did all the talking. Absolutely. Sorry. Thank you.